This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Now, usually, if a paper's reporters can't get the answers they need from a source to stand up a news story, it goes on the spike and readers never see it. So why is one editor now taking up precious space in her paper, publishing reporters' unanswered questions? And, same time, same channel, same F-bomb. Zoe Sadowski-Sinnott's delighted dad also made it a sweary double on TV Channel 3 this week. It's always a risk, wasn't it? It's always a risk. I thought we might have learned the lesson last time. Live, live television. Okay. But first, we look at mixed messages in our media this past week about those protesters at Parliament. The superintendent, though, also alluded to sanitation being an issue at Parliament grounds and not just COVID, although that is a very real risk. He's described the situation there as squalor. He said that there's faeces on the ground and children are playing in the mud. That was TVNZ reporter Kushla Norman on One News last Monday after that warning about the real risk of illness among protesters at Parliament from faecal contamination. The squalor reinforced calls for the convoy crowd to be moved on from blocking the streets and blocking the drains, but the capital's top cops warning that shit just got real, so to speak, didn't move Barry Soper of News Talk ZB. Uh, they were offended by that. I talked to a number of them. There's no feces anywhere. They've got portaloos down there. Um, and they're, they're Kiwis. A lot of them are uh, mandated uh, out of their jobs. On Monday, Barry Soper went on to tell his partner, ZB's drive host Heather Duplessy-Allen, those protesters were not as bad as they'd been painted either. And that view clearly held sway in their household. They insist that this is an anti-mandate protest and reporters on the ground there say that this does seem to be the case. Now, don't confuse anti-mandate with anti-vax. In fact, right across that network, the in-house talent seemed to be on the same page on this. In the same show soon after, NZME's head of business, Fran O'Sullivan, said it was time to engage with the not-so-rogue elements. I mean, not all those people on that lawn are crazy. There's a lot of people who are, you know, pretty ordinary folk who, uh, for one or another reason, uh, find themselves out of jobs. They don't necessarily want to be, um, uh, you know, vaccinated in some cases, and some just don't like the mandates and don't like freedom being imposed upon. And all this was a much more positive and savoury picture of the protesters than the media had been painting just days earlier. The sympathy was all for the Wellington people then and the police on the receiving end of physical aggro, irrational rhetoric and nooses, Nuremberg and Hangham High imagery. These people, most in the media seemed at pains to point out then, were not just a minority, but a mere fraction of the anti-vax and anti-social fringe element. Last week, for instance, the owner of the backbencher pub, in the thick of it at Ground Zero, was telling TV reporters the protesters were the worst he'd seen in 30 years, and he had to close his business. Last Wednesday, he told ZB's Kate Hawksby this. I've met the leaders of the protest. They are organised, reasonable and focused. They are not armed in any way, and they are peaceful. And Kate Hawkesby is also part of a ZB on-air couple with pretty similar views on the air. But Mike Hosking, her husband, has never had much time for direct action. Back in 2019, for example, he told his listeners this about the people occupying Ihumatau and protesting about Orangatamariki. So many protests, so little time. Actually, speaking of time, you notice how many people have got so much of it? I mean, is it time and loo they're taking, do you think, or is it annual leave they're taking for all these protests? So at the end of last week, Mike Hosking said that convoy crowd had wasted their time and everyone else's. <laughs> Didn't work. It wasn't groundswell. wasn't well organised. Had mixed messages. Too many nutters. Too many angry people. Protests make a point. They sway debate. This one just pissed everybody off. 
But last Monday, like so many of his ZB colleagues, Mike Hosking was suddenly giving the protesters quite a bit of credit. They represent all of us that right now have a sense that things aren't right. We don't all want to protest. Of course, most of us don't see protest as being a particularly useful outworking of energy. Uh, this one will end with little or no change to whatever it was they were wanting to alter. But it is an outpouring of emotion, and I admire people who want to give up a lot of time and effort to travel and hunker down and presumably get a sense of some sort of personal accomplishment. And in spite of the fact that there were at that point no publicly acknowledged leaders or mainstream political backers and the only demands they'd issued were ridiculous, calls mounted for the government or the police to negotiate with them. Politics lecturer and pundit Dr Bryce Edwards, for example, told News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen that any aggression at the protest had more or less evaporated. Earlier last week it was pretty aggro and there were some pretty nutty people there and now it feels more festival. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly eccentric, and uh, those eccentrics at times were pretty aggressive, and um, I don't know, the vibe has totally changed. But eccentric was a surprising word for people who'd heard the media paint the mob as mad, bad and dangerous to be around just days earlier. The same day, Dr Edwards also told RNZ's morning report that protesters had been unfairly smeared as far-right, drawing this response from another commentator, Morgan Godfrey. Price is absolutely wrong to gloss over the involvement of the far right. Uh, we have seen the involvement of counterspin media and we've seen involvement of uh, currents in society which I think the vast majority of New Zealanders will find mm. very uncomfortable okay. with. And among those obviously uncomfortable with that was the former Labour staffer Neil Jones. As the left-leaning pundit on Nine to Noon's weekly politics slot on Monday, he told Catherine Ryan these were not people with whom to negotiate. This protest is based on the most wild conspiracy theories. It is a very mainstream view in the protest movement at Parliament that the vaccination programme is a conspiracy from governments, corporations, journalists, health workers and scientists to secretly poison and murder millions of people. And that's why we're seeing quite prominent demands for the Prime Minister, you know, Ashley Bloomfield, senior ministers and journalists to be arrested and tried and executed under the Nuremberg Code. Australian news agency the AAP this week did a pretty impressive fact check on whether New Zealanders could actually make a citizen's arrest of the health minister for culpable murder, and it concluded they can't, though that was unlikely to cut through the crowd who came to the capital with that on their to-do list. Nevertheless, Nine to Noon's host Catherine Ryan pushed back hard against Neil Jones and his declaration of illegitimacy. They don't read the same media or follow the same media that you do unquestioningly, they may have been fed, as anyone is, some stuff on Facebook or from friends or peers that has brought them to a conclusion that they don't want to get vaccinated or get their kids vaccinated, and now their 13-year-old can't go to dance and can't compete in the sprint championships. Now, you don't have to be at the extreme end of things to get upset about that. We're going round in circles, a frustrated Catherine Ryan told her guests soon after that, and listeners had the same feeling about that debate this past week in the media. But in Parliament on Wednesday, mere metres from the mob that wouldn't get off the grass, Government Minister Michael Wood called far-right influence a river of filth that was running through the protest. There is a river of violence and menace. There is a a river of anti-Semitism. There is a river of Islamophobia. There is a river of threats to people who work in this place and our staff. Um, And those are things that we should not in any way be condoning. And Michael Wood rejected the notion of simply good people who are suffering from vaccine mandates who just wanted the chance to negotiate them. 
I would say, Madam Speaker, that there is a river of genuine fascism in parts of the event that we see out the front of this Parliament today. And I just urge colleagues in this House, decent and honourable members of the centre-right parliamentary parties in this Parliament, that a lot is actually on them to not give succour and comfort to an emergent and dangerous far-right movement. And I just ask those members to reflect upon that. But was this something for the media to reflect on too? Some who had been impressed with the protesters' stickability had pivoted to painting them as not a vector for far-right threats, but possible partners for peace. And that's in spite of the fact that backers of the protest with clout were still thin on the ground, unlike the protesters, and that they made little sense. Later that night, for example, Dame Tariana Turia told RNZ that she backed the protesters in part because she reckoned she'd seen evidence of the Prime Minister doing a Heil Hitler salute back when she was a socialist. Are you serious? I'm deadly serious. So you are suggesting that she is in some way aligned to Nazi sympathies? I certainly believe that she's a socialist. But is that, that, that Nazi and socialist, the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Well, I don't know so much. The next day, Thursday, News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen was also telling her listeners that the ball was now not in the protesters' court, but the government's. Now, I fully understand why the government didn't want to meet the protesters last week. Fair enough. The vibe back then, the scene was ugly and disruptive and violent, right? But don't you think the vibe seems to have changed a wee bit? It's gone a bit from being aggro at the start of last week to at the end of this week being more of a hippie festival. And less than an hour after that, the notion of harmless hippies just hoping for peace was put into perspective by TVNZ's Kristen Hall. On One News, she reported that agro was actually getting more intense online and on the ground. Some opposed to mandates have posted significantly more extreme rhetoric online. They include gruesome threats of executions and hangings. David Seymour's meeting with protesters on Wednesday drew this response from far-right extremist and protest attendee Calvin Alp. You're lucky they're not, or they haven't already strung you up from the nearest bloody lamppost, you clown. Analysis from research group Tapunaha Matatini shows such content has grown in popularity and scale since the protest began. And an irony, even though some media were painting a very positive picture of the protesters, much of the mob still really hate the media. And you will be held accountable! No, we won't. Yes, you bloody will! It's an undercurrent of something much darker. So much for that freedom to live and work. Far-right imagery, slogans and outbursts in online media outlets seen last week were still clear and present this week. So have parts of our media then fundamentally misunderstood this movement, or even been duped by it? Hayden Donnell asked Byron C. Clark, who's been researching and documenting far-right activity online here for years. Kia ora, Byron, and welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, thank you for having me on. At first, the media coverage of this protest at Parliament was pretty universally negative, and I think that's really changed this week, where we had lots of reporters and commentators coming out and saying, you know, the protests are peaceful and the government needs to take a more conciliatory stance and negotiate. Do you think there's been a concerted effort by the protesters to sanitise their reputation in a way? Yeah, I think certainly from some factions of the protesters, I I think there are some people who are 
there on site and some people who maybe aren't there on site but are backing it online who want to see that that really militant, angry protest that we had at the start where there was you know, messages about hanging politicians and, and so forth. And there are others who want to take this more more moderate stance where they, you know, try and downplay that kind of more extreme element. And, and I think there are people there who, who want to be leaders who are negotiating with, with uh, politicians, with the government, pushing for that more, more sanitised image and telling people to, you know, stop yelling at journalists to come and, and instead be friendly and, you know, and, and tone down some of the signs and the chalk that we saw in the early days of the protest. Should we buy that, though? Are the media kind of falling for a bit of a trick here? Are we falling for a PR pitch by the protesters? Quite possibly. And maybe the sympathetic coverage that we're seeing of the protesters from journalists who have gone along and engaged with those more more moderate elements, which may be a result of the more extreme elements not being not being willing to engage with journalists at all and just yelling at them or, or whatever. So we get a, an almost skewed look at the protest because the only people who will consent to being interviewed are the people who are more moderate. We need to look not just at people who are on site, but look at the, the organising channels on social media apps like Telegram and, and Zello and, and look at the rhetoric that's going on there and look at what people are, are saying there because the, the message we're going to get from moderate protesters in Wellington who are willing to speak to the media isn't going to tell the full story and isn't going to give a complete picture of the mood of the protest watch their own media because the protesters have have a whole ecosystem of alternative media. One of them is, is Counterspin Media who have been around for almost a year now and do a couple of episodes each week but are currently doing like 12 hour long live streams of the protest every day and then there's other live streams like Chantal Baker who's there doing all these live streams and these people are you know, talking to, to people who I think are saying different things than what they say to a mainstream media journalist. And I think to get a really full picture, you know, we need all of that. We need people on site. We need to look at the media they're producing themselves. And we need to look at, you know, their organising conversations on, on apps like Telegram. You're in all of these apps and you've studied it extensively, not just now this week, but for years and years. Does it strike mm. you as kind of credulous when people like Bryce Edwards go to the campsite and say, oh, well, they seem peaceful? Does that kind of jar with your experience of these movements? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it seems like almost willful ignorance at this point for, for Bryce Edwards and others to be describing the protest a, as peaceful because there have been plenty of reports all all across the media and from People, people who research disinformation, like uh, um, the Disinformation Project, who are showing some of this this rhetoric that's coming out. And I think to be talking of the protest as peaceful is just you have to ignore all of that. It seems like he really sh- is, is allowing himself to propagate this idea that it's peaceful, that it's moderate, that it's a carnival. When meanwhile we've got on Telegram, we've got people still calling for um, trials and execution of politicians. We've got on um, Counterspin Media uh, the hosts telling people to read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. We've got all that there, and to not report on that almost seems like being part of that disinformation at the moment, at this point in time. Yeah, so we had Michael Wood calling out what he saw as this river of filth, he was a quote, Mm. underpinning the movement, and you had uh, Tama Iti saying this, it's not Sinorangasida Tama. It's not Manamotsuhake. Mm. It's a couple driven by um, uh, the Donald Trump mentality mm. and all of that. 
are those observations correct? To what extent does this movement draw from the alt-right and Trumpian populist movements we see in places like the US? I mean, it's very clearly got a large alt-right element to it. I mean, we're seeing um, the Trump flags, we're seeing um, various alt-right memes, you know, written on people's signs and things like that. It's not necessarily the case that everybody there is part of the alt-right, but for the alt-right, they see this broader anti-vaccine movement as fertile ground for recruitment and for propagating their ideology because you've got a group of people who are already distrustful of the government, distrustful of authority, of experts. And if you can find people who already believe that the government is lying to them about vaccines and the media is lying to to them about vaccines, those people can more easily be convinced that the the government and the media are, are lying about other things as well. And that's where you start to get these far more insidious conspiracy theories, uh, like some of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that I'm seeing pop up on Telegram and conspiracy theories um, about the Christchurch shooting, which are being shared around some of these groups and some of these things here. So it's not the case that everyone at the protest is a committed member of an alt-right movement, but it's certainly the case that the alt-right has a presence in this movement and is trying to influence the direction it takes. Yeah, is there an element of obscuring true ideals from that alt-right element? Rangi Kemada posted this video of the protesters holding a mock trial. I think there's I think there's an element of that. I think there's some people involved on, on the alt-right who are you know, pretty open about their ideology and what they believe. But then there are more more moderate elements who are trying to downplay that and more interested in perhaps negotiations. I've seen, you know, right from the, the day that the protest began in Wellington when the convoy arrived, I started to see some of the splits between the more radical and the more, more moderate factions uh, because a, a speaker representing the Freedom and Rights Coalition uh, told protesters to to go and move their cars so that people could commute home at the end of the workday. And that was met with a lot of anger from um, the hosts of Countersman Media who wanted this to be a very disruptive protest and didn't want it to just be a rally when then people stopped blocking the streets. And I think that they aren't necessarily hiding their their own beliefs and their own ideology, but are trying to push aside the more, more extreme elements. And that causes conflict with others who are more extreme and want want themselves to be the leaders of this movement or, or be at least the the official voice of this movement as, as Countersman is, is trying to be, even though they are a more radical fringe than I think a lot of the people are actually there. Yeah, it's part of the confusion that a lot of the people that are there are some people that you might have identified as liberal or left-wing. I mean, I've seen this among mm. my own friends where they get drawn down this anti-vax channel and then uh the they're still they still have these sort of uh peaceful sensibilities but they're drawn into this mm. different world because of their opposition to vaccines mm. yeah and i think there's 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 a pipeline that people can go down to to get to the alt-right and it's not necessarily people who are already on the right politically just moving further and further towards the right. It's it's people right across the political spectrum who are moving further and further away from reality. So if you already are sceptical of vaccines and, and maybe you're sceptical for 
you know, the typical kind of left-wing reasons you might be distrustful of, of the pharmaceutical industry um, and feel that they're only out to make a profit and you might be sceptical of vaccines for that reason. But then if you go into these anti-vax groups online, you're going to be... But then if you go into these anti-vax groups online, you're going to be um, experiencing conversations about other conspiracy theories and people will be saying yes the the media is lying to you not just about this but also about these other things and as you start to disengage with mainstream media and increasingly only engage with these these fringe social media sites you're going to be influenced by a lot of these ideas and even if you keep calling yourself a, a liberal or left-wing going along to these protests which are being shaped by the by the far right, are you are you part of a far right movement without even realising it? I, I think that mm. that's probably the case for some of the people outside Parliament at the moment. Well, th- these protesters really hate the mainstream media. This is one of their animating mm. forces. It's almost something that they're more unified on than anything else. And yes. I'm going to ask, why do these protesters hate the media so much? But is it because it's like an existential uh, matter for the movement in in general? Like if you if you start engaging with other sources outside of their trusted sources, then the movement starts to wither and die. I mean, I think the the distrust for the, for the media maybe in some cases comes from beginning with the point of having a healthy scepticism of the mainstream media. But then if people are already inclined to be um, sceptical about vaccines, they'll start seeking out sources that reinforce their existing worldview and they'll they'll end up on alternative media and a lot of these alternative media sites will be even more critical of the mainstream media. A really common conspiracy theory that I see is the idea that the government or or even Jacinda Ardern personally is funding all the mainstream media and they they point to some of the grants that have been made, made available to media and they say that this means the media is biased and they're only propagating the view of the government and the only real independent media are these fringe platforms like uh, like counterspin and getting the message constantly that the mainstream media is compromised the mainstream media is lying and the only sources you can trust are these alternative ones who may give them the information about vaccines that reinforces their existing ideas gets them that confirmation bias but then they're also going to bring in various other conspiracy theories and various other ideas as well how dangerous is it for the media and politicians at the moment? Because we do see all of these references in the Telegram channels to stuff like the Nuremberg trials, images of people being hung from after World War Two, Nazi Germany. There's more danger than, than there was in the past. I don't know exactly how dangerous it is. But I do see on Telegram these talks about uh, having common law courts and then holding trials for politicians and for the media with the caravette that after these trials, some of these people will be put to death or will be executed publicly. And I think that's really, really animating a few of these protesters who really believe that politicians or journalists are the enemy and that violence against them would be morally justified because they see these people as being complicit in a genocide. This isn't just a new phenomenon, though. You've been monitoring this for years. After March 15, 2019, mm. the government stepped up monitoring of uh, the internet for domestic extremism. Do our newsrooms also need to be doing what you're doing and monitoring and infiltrating groups like Telegram and Zello and stuff like that to actually understand what's going on in these types of protests and other social movements across the country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been... 
fielding a lot of inquiries from from journalists from the media this past week and i'm i'm always happy to to speak to speak to these people about the information that i know and what i know about these groups and and these um alternative media sites and so on but i'm not i'm not even a full-time journalist i i work a day job and i do a little bit of freelance writing and a youtube channel on on top of that i think some of our, our newsrooms should be putting more resources into researching these groups researching these um, fringe elements because we should know after what happened in, in Christchurch in 2019 that just because this stuff is happening online and looks like it's it's quite fringe doesn't mean it's not going to burst out into the real world as it did in the case of the Christchurch shooting when we became aware, a lot more aware of alt-right growing on fringe websites like 8chan but also the influence of of alt-right misinformation, disinformation on more mainstream social media. And while there's been some changes to the mainstream social media in the last three years, that alt-right is still there on the new, what sometimes are called alt-tech platforms, the the alternative platforms that have been set up specifically to cater for people who have been uh, deplatformed or banned from more mainstream social media. And it's not going away, and if anything, it seems to actually be, be growing in these spaces like Telegram. And I think the pandemic has really caused a lot more people to start seeking out these conspiracy theories while people were on lockdown and, and stuck at home. They were spending a lot more time online, going down these rabbit holes, it's largely been ignored by the media until suddenly we get thousands of people out on the streets in front of Parliament. Those thousands of people have all been chatting to each other on Telegram for, for months, if not years. Is there a danger, though, in the attention that's being drawn to these alt platforms, uh, like Counterspin, by the mainstream media now? Now more people are going to become aware of these channels. They might visit them out of curiosity, and they might be drawn into these rabbit holes themselves. I, what I try and do and what, what others have advocated is rather than uh, debunking conspiracy theories, uh, do what's called pre-bunking, uh, sort of expose people to a little bit of this misinformation, this disinformation before they come across it um, so that when they do come across it, their first exposure to that has been somebody criticising it and somebody contrasting that with real facts and real real information. That's what the media should be aiming to do when talking about um, counterspan and talking about about some of these other individuals who are involved. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, Byron. Thank you. That's Byron C. Clark, a researcher into online misinformation and extremism, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. On Friday, media eyebrows were raised when people claiming to be leaders of the protest, but who didn't give their names, sent a statement of apology to some journalists for the treatment they'd had from some protesters, and that included the expulsions from the Parliament grounds we mentioned earlier. But it had only just come to their attention, they said, though the reporters found that hard to believe, as the ones they sent the statement to had been reporting on just how they'd been targeted for days. But that move didn't mean it was back to usual for the media. If they wanted access to the swelling protest site, these nameless leaders said the reporters would have to let their media liaison team know well in advance via email so they could be escorted by what was described as our internal security. Again, so much for freedom. Though Newsroom's political reporter Joe Moyer saw a funny side. They've only been here 11 days, she joked, and already they've picked up the worst bits of the public service. 
But that wasn't quite so much of a joke for Anna Fifield, the editor of Wellington's daily paper The Dominion Post, who took up the job last year after many years reporting overseas. Last weekend on Media Watch, we heard from her about the difficulties of reporting the protest playing out in her paper's patch right now. In the same weekend, her paper launched a campaign of its own about the public service not revealing things of genuine public interest to reporters. Every Saturday, under the banner What We Didn't Learn This Week, the Weekend Dom Post will list the questions that it put to public agencies that week which didn't get answered fully or at all. And Anna Fifield herself kicked this off the previous weekend in a piece provocatively headlined When Did Our Public Service Get So Arrogant? She said that open government here appears to be on the wane, and she blamed the growth in what she called the communications industrial complex, which means journalists now are vastly outnumbered by spin doctors, or, as Anna Fifield put it, vast battalions of people who work to deflect and avoid or answer only in the most oblique manner possible. All questions, she complained, must go through communications professionals at our public outfits rather than to the relevant experts or public officials. And almost always, she said, the replies come via email with insufficient responses written in bureaucraties. But is it really any worse here than any of the many other countries where Anna Fifield has worked as a journalist? First up, I was writing not about COVID information, but about all of government, the lack of transparency that we have encountered, whether it's from MPI or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or Waka Kotahi, like it seems to be pervasive uh, across government. And also, I'd like to say, you know, I know that there are a lot of very hardworking, very expert public servants out there who are trying to do their job. My point was that there is this battalion of communications people, gatekeepers, whose job seems to be to stop the media ever being able to talk to those experts, the people who know what they're talking about, about very complicated issues like three waters reforms or healthcare reforms and and things like this. So, yes, there is this kind of spin cycle around many other countries in the world. And maybe I hold my own country to a higher standard. But, you know, having spent 20 years overseas and coming back, I've been really surprised at how entrenched these spin doctor gatekeepers have become and how obstructive they are compared to other places where I've worked, like the UK, the US, Japan, South Korea. For example, when I was at the White House during the Obama administration and that uh, administration was embarking on healthcare reforms, immigration reforms, it was really standard for a group of reporters to go into the White House and to have an hour with people who were in charge of those reforms, who knew the ins and outs. And you could ask questions, they would explain things to you, so you got a really good understanding of what was going on and what they were trying to do. And, you know, you can ask stupid questions. We are generalists. I am not an expert in um, transmission gully PPP-type projects and things. So I think that kind of background brief is really, really beneficial both to the authorities and to the media. The fact that you can ask a DHB how many ICU beds they have and they won't answer. They will make you put in an Official Information Act request for something that is just a number. I find that really, really alarming. What actually happens here? Do they phone the individual, whether it's someone, say, Waka Kotahi, about Transmission Gully, which you're running a campaign on now, uh, someone who really knows what's going on with the delays to the opening of, of the motorway, and do they just say, look, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you, you will need to go to our communications team, you can't quote me, I'm not allowed. Is, is that what happens? 
sometimes yes um more often it has to go through the communications team like we might not have phone numbers or what have you and that will just be send in your questions and you'll get an emailed response back maybe attributed to that person but and the problem with email right there's no opportunity for back and forth you can't say oh i don't understand this part can you explain it in a timely way or in an intelligible way often you know it comes back in kind of turgid officialese uh, and not in kind of everyday conversational language even media companies, news media companies, will do this, where there's a question they don't really want to address fully. They will give you a brief and boring statement uh, in text form and insist that it's attributable only to a spokesperson, even when you know perfectly well the person you're dealing with has drafted that on behalf of the company. And should the media <clears throat> actually making a, make a point, if they can't get the accountability they're looking for, should we make a point of saying exactly who wrote that statement, exactly where it comes from, and also give the message to the people. We'll name the spokesperson who said this uh, on behalf of their institution, if that's the best we can do. Yes, absolutely. And that is what we in the Wellington newsroom here are doing every single time. We are saying to the communications people, you know, your job is to speak to the media on behalf of the company. We are going to name you. Uh, And a lot of the time they say, okay. Uh, A lot of the time, maybe half the time they say no. And in that case, we say, okay, well, who do we attribute this to? Like somebody needs to put their name to this. Maybe 90 percent of the time and now we are naming the spokespeople who are who are giving those statements there are a few occasions uh, like police or maybe specific immigration cases where there might be a valid reason for not naming that person but I will ask them to explain that and we will as much as possible be transparent about why we are not naming that person the same goes for anonymous sources across the board I think it's and we should use those very sparingly and when we do, we need to explain to readers why we're not naming that person. However, though, Anne, if, if, say, one official does front up, take responsibility, puts their name to something and makes a statement to you on something like, for example, the transmission galley delays uh, that you're reporting on right now, you and your reporters, your paper, are going to sheet the responsibility home to them, attach their name to it. And it might be something that's a collective, complicated failure. So can we blame public servants for being shy of you and perhaps their communications people from trying to shield individuals from the consequences of, uh, you know, exposure in the media. The media in New Zealand stuff has not covered itself in glory uh, all the time. In recent years, you know, there has been a history of clickbait and gotcha kind of stories, but we are really trying hard to move past that and stuff has made trust its metric now not uh not clicks i mean we that's a journey we're still uh on that journey uh and we want to be held accountable for that too but the vast majority of conversations i think are or of interviews are this information gathering with the person who is responsible for a department or for a policy so i think it's reasonable to be able to ask questions of that person um, and to expect answers from them and you know i think journalists are not out to get uh, public servants i think that they're looking for proper answers and to be able to hold the public service accountable for for spending taxpayers' money and and for, you know, what they do on behalf of the public. And uh, Business Desk, um, the outfit founded by uh, veteran journalist Patrick Smelly, um, they now have a project with money from the Public Interest Journalism Fund. So this is a state-funded project, effectively small team reporting on the public service, zeroing in on that. Is that a good idea uh, in this regard? 
I think it's an excellent idea. And I was kicking myself that I didn't think of it because I think, yeah, it's a great, um, a great initiative and yeah, exactly what the media should be doing to try to act as that public accountability watchdog there. I mean, in the fact, of course, the Public Interest Journalism Fund is quite controversial. I get a lot of complaints uh, to me about the fact that we're taking this money, but I always say, you know, it is at arm's distance from the government. We are not beholden to the government. And here is an example of how we use this funding, uh, you know, often to be critical of the government. Uh, and so that is exactly what Business Desk is, is doing there. So, I, yeah, I think it's a really good project and I'm very interested to see what they produce. And finally, Anna, while you and your reporters might find it hard to get uh, straight answers and on-the-record responses from the public sector and public servants, it's interesting to me that some public servants and even some members of the media uh, do take part in conferences that seem to happen fairly frequently about this, which are all about how to engage the public. So these are commercial events by professional conference companies. There are, coincidentally, there are two running simultaneously at the very end of this month. There's one called... um, uh, collaborating with the media for mutual benefit, um, the uh, communications manager of Three Waters Reform for Hamilton City Council will be talking along with the chief political reporter at News Talk ZB, Jason Walls, uh, about how media and communications team can have productive working relationships for both parties. At the very same time that's in Wellington, there's another one in Auckland, which sounds almost identical, where public servants, members of the media, public relations uh, professionals are telling these paying clients at these conferences how to engage the media and improve transparency. I mean, weird if this little industry is going on with uh, public servants and the media taking part, and yet you're having the problems you're talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, these kinds of courses and training has been happening for a long time. Uh, That's not new. I would hope that they were using it to encourage them to be more forthcoming, how to be articulate, how to get the message across, you know, how to answer difficult questions. But I have a sneaky suspicion that that's not what they are teaching them, that this is, yeah, about how not to answer questions um, and how to squirm out of these kinds of situations. So the focus of the one in Auckland starting at the end of this month, Anna, is on actually how to maximise social media. So a lot of those sessions are probably about how communications uh, can be done over the top or past the media, direct from uh, whoever it is wants to get the message out to the public via social channels. And that's part of the problem here too, isn't it, that they've prioritised that and not communication with with journalists and, um, and local media outlets like the Dom Post. Yeah, of course. I mean, that enables them to go directly to people. But I think that people want us to be asking those questions rather than just hearing the spin, I guess. But um, um, And I, I hope that these working journalists are encouraging the public servants to be more forthcoming To Yeah, well, actually, to, to be fair, that one that Jason Walls of News Talk ZB is taking part in does say uh, the media and communications team can have productive working relationships or they can become trapped in a combative and evasive paradigm, which benefits nobody. Uh, so they are actually talking about, yeah, hopefully he'd be telling them the sorts of things that you would want um, a, an audience of people that we're dealing with, journalists and media outlets, to know. Hopefully, yes. That was Anna Fifield, editor of the Daily Paper in the Capital, the Dominion Post, talking to me there about things we didn't learn this week. The paper's new section every weekend, publishing all the questions that public agencies didn't and wouldn't answer from her journalists.
Now, as Anna Fifield mentioned there, the government's $55 million public interest journalism fund has been controversial, particularly among those who reckon that the money skews the media that are receiving it or that the media just don't deserve it in the first place. And recently, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, which oversees public media funding, quietly published a report which was written last November in which the consultants in Auckland concluded there was actually no strong case for public funding of commercial news media content. On Midweek Media Watch this week, I talked about that and other stuff with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. If you missed it, it's available on the RNZ website, the Media Watch page of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. And finally, this weekend on Media Watch, last weekend on the programme, we heard how the delighted dad of Winter Olympic gold medalist Zoe sadowski Sinnott let loose a couple of F-bombs live on News Hub at Six. How proud are you right now? You, your daughter's just become the first Kiwi to win a winter gold, ever. I'm pretty f- excited, to be honest. And a swift sorry about that from the sports host back in the studio was clearly called for. And when Zoe sadowski Sinnott secured a silver medal last Tuesday... The same reporter was tempting fate by having Sean Sinnott on live again. I dare ask you this, but just how excited are you? That was the original question, yes. Um, incredibly excited today. Same channel, same question, but a different outcome. So had Sean Sinnott learned his live TV lesson there? Not quite. About half an hour later on three, the project had him on live as well. Magnificent achievement. Um, two f***ing gold medals. <laughs> uh, two medals. Oh, it was always a risk, wasn't it? Yeah. It's was always a risk. I thought we live. might have learned the lesson last time. Live, live television. Okay. Oh dear. Still, anyone who is offended by that language does have options if they want to complain. They can use the standards for taste and decency or accuracy. Because Sean Sinnott's daughter didn't win two effing golds in Beijing, just one effing gold and one silver. Well, that's all from Media Watch for this weekend. We'll be back again with more on the media, though, at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on Midweek Media Watch during The Lately Show. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.